If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Thursday, February the 15th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Our guest today, Dr. Henry Miller. He's the Hoover Institution's Robert Wesson Fellow in Scientific Philosophy and Public Policy, and he's Dr. Miller because he is an MD, a physician and at one time a flu researcher. And that's the topic of today's podcast, The Flu. Henry, thanks for coming into studio. Delighted to be with you, Bill. Have you had your flu shot? I have indeed, every year without fail. When did you get it? When? Mm-hmm. Uh, late October, early early on. About as early as possible. Yes. Is it still time? Is it still time to get a flu shot? There is. There is the uh, uh, we as of the last data from the Centers for Disease Control, the flu hadn't yet peaked. In fact, it, there was no hint of it peaking. So although it takes two, about two weeks for full immunity, it's certainly worth doing for people who haven't yet. Okay, I want to get into what the government can and cannot should be doing in the way of trying to control the flu breakout, Henry. But first, let's do a little bit that I like to call disease for dummies. So first of all, explain to me, Henry, what exactly influenza is. Uh, Influenza is a a virus. Uh, It's a virus whose genome consists of RNA, uh, which is similar to DNA. Uh, It has eight little segments, which are analogous to chromosomes. And these contain all of the information necessary for the virus to propagate once it infects uh, cells, mammalian cells of some sort, human, um, swine, or dog even, and uh, bir- even birds. All right. What causes influenza? What is the, what is the prompting of influenza? Well, uh, f- flu uh, is, a, uh, is a serious a, a serious illness, potentially. I should say that um, viruses in general uh, have an impact that depends on two things, uh, two factors, virulence, which means the severity of the illness that it produces, and uh, infectiousness, its ability to spread. And flu has the advantage advantage for it that uh, it's, it's very high on both those scales. So uh, that contrasts with, say, the viruses that cause the common cold, which are highly infectious, but which are not very virulent. So they, they spread, but they don't cause severe illness. Uh, HIV, AIDS virus, is the opposite of the common cold virus. It causes severe disease, but is not easily spread. So flu is, uh, is, is severe because uh, it's both virulent and very infectious. And how does one die from contracting the flu? Well, there are a couple of ways. Um, one the, uh, that we've known about uh, for a long time is that uh, sometimes uh, flu, although it infects the upper uh, airways mostly, uh, back of the, of the uh, throat, um, the uh, large airways, it occasionally becomes pneumonia. That's when it gets down into the uh, into the smaller airways, uh, and uh, it's serious then because it, uh, there's a, an outpouring of, of fluids in a condition called flu pneumonia, not surprisingly. But also, uh, once the fluid is there, it uh, it makes people susceptible to superinfection by bacteria. The bacteria can grow easily in this fluid that's present in the lungs, and that's a, a dire situation, as actually is just the flu virus itself uh, infecting the uh, the airways and the cells of the lung. Um, there's also another way that we, we discovered only in relatively recent years, uh, and it, it's a condition that affects um, primarily people who are in their prime or children who have a robust, who ironically have a robust immune response. And it's called cytokine storm. And so what happens there is that the the flu virus infection induces a a massive inflammatory response, again, most pronounced in people who have a robust uh, immune system. And uh, that cytokine storm is so-called because the uh, uh, human lymphocytes 
and, and fight, trying to fight off the virus, release uh, very powerful chemicals called cytokines. And that, uh, that um, massive immune response is actually counterproductive and causes uh, fluid in the lungs and uh, shutdown of the kidneys eventually uh, and liver and often death. So those are the two ways that, uh, that it can kill. All right, let's clear up two misperceptions about, about flu season and how to treat it. Number one, if I get a flu shot, I will not get the flu. Conversely, if I get a flu shot, I will get the flu. Let's take the I'm sure se- you've heard people say I, both. I have, I have heard both. Let's, let's take the second one first. Yeah, if I get, if uh, I get a flu shot, I'm going right, to get the right. flu. The vast majority of the, of the flu vaccines do not contain live virus, so they cannot transmit the flu. Uh, period. And the ones that uh, the few vaccines that that are uh, comprised of low virulence, uh, only marginally infective, uh, but live flu virus also do not cause the flu. There are, there are no cases recorded of their reverting to something that's highly pathogenic and, and causing the real flu. Um, so, uh, we can dispense with that. What was the other part of the your other one? Question? Is if I get a flu shot, um, I will not get the. If, oh. I, if I if I if I get a flu shot, um, okay. I, if I get a flu shot, I will get the flu, and if I get a flu shot, I will not get the flu. Well, so it's a hundred percent guarantee. I I, I I wish uh, it were true that if we got a flu shot, that we wouldn't get the flu. Right. But the the reality is that flu vaccines are only uh, somewhat effective, and. Uh, to to understand that, let me uh, explain how the uh, the flu vaccine is formulated. Uh, in January of each year, a panel of virologists and epidemiologists meets and decides which strains of of uh, flu virus will be in the vaccine for the the forthcoming flu season, which is about eight or nine months hence. Uh, and, uh, and they decide what to cook, in essence. They, what decide, to, what to put in. they decide what to what to cook, what, okay. the, what the formulation is. And they also be. decide how much to make because they, they're anticipating what the flu what the flu, flu population will be, right? Well, that's hard to do. Right. The, the hint they get is that um, they, they often get a head start from, uh, from what, uh, has, what flu strains have circulated in the southern hemisphere, mm-hmm. whose seasons, of course, are the opposite of ours. So they make a guess as to how many. And there are, there are two kinds of uh, flu virus that go into the vaccine. There's influenza A and influenza B. And uh, most of this year's uh, vaccines are, have three strains of uh, influenza A and one of, of flu B. Most of the flu that's going around is A. And it's a uh, the predominant strain is something called H3N2, which refers to the kind of um, molecules that are on the surface uh, of the virus. And each year, Henry, it's a different flu, so that each flu gets a designation that's different. E- each well, it, it depends on what's what happens to be circulating. Right. This year, it's H3N2, uh, which can be the dump predominant strain two or three years in a row. It, it varies a great deal. Uh, it, it happens that um, the, uh, there are two things that, uh, that can cause the vaccine to be uh, not very effective. One that we're seeing this year is that, as I said, the, the predominant strain is H3N2. And um, since most of the vaccines are grown in fertilized chicken eggs, tens and tens of millions of fertilized chicken eggs. It happens that H3N2 uh, doesn't produce a very good vaccine in chicken eggs. Um, And so uh, that's one reason. The other reason is that it may be that the, um, the, the sages who meet to decide which strains go into the vaccine, Mm -hmm. just don't guess very well, not through any fault of their own necessarily, but uh, flu mutates very rapidly. And we can get into that. Well, well, before that, forgive my naivete, but why why the involvement of chicken eggs? Why is this this not done remotely in a lab? Why do you have to have chicken eggs involved? Well, it's, it's been done that way since the 1940s. 
Uh, and and that's something that we can talk about in, in uh, uh, suggesting policy changes. Uh, it's an antiquated technique. It's slow. And for certain strains like H3N2, uh, it doesn't yield a highly effective so vaccine. How many, so how many chicken eggs are involved? How many eggs are involved? Tens of tens thousands Tens and, and tens of millions. Tens and tens of millions of eggs. Yeah. Um, so um, the, uh, in, in a given year, the flu vaccine is roughly between 10 and 60 percent effective, um, less, less effective consistently in seniors because uh, for those of us who are over 60, our immune systems are just not very robust mm -hmm. anymore. The, the robustness decreases with age. Um, so um, uh, there, it's between, as I said, it's between 10 and 60 percent on average. This year's is in the range of 25 to 30 percent effective. That's, that's not terrific, right. but it's better, a lot better than nothing. What is the status, Henry, of the supply of vaccine? Is there a vaccine available right now, or are we running, running low, or have we run out? There's plenty of vaccine available. Plenty available. And so we're, I'm in Palo Alto, California. Where do I find it? Where do you go? Yeah, where do I go? Um, Call my doctor? You can go to your doctor's office. You mm -hmm. can go to um, many large pharmacies mm -hmm. who will uh, give you the shot and even uh, charge your your insurance carrier, if you have one, um, public health clinics, uh, of course, and um, uh, here at Stanford, you can go to the Student Health Center, uh, and th for those of us who are employees, they'll they'll give us the shot. I should say that uh, there are uh, special formulations for seniors, and they contain uh, an increased amount of antigen. That antigen is the uh, actual substance, the part of the of the flu virus that elicits the immune response, and that's the, the guts of the vaccine. A couple more questions, and I'll get to the policy side of this. What is flu season on the calendar? Uh, it, it varies somewhat. Uh, the the uh, uh, error bars, if you will, the, uh, are uh, October until May. Mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes it uh, begins early and peaks early uh, and then diminishes. Uh, this year, we, we saw a, uh, a worrisome pattern. It began in October with a vengeance. Mm -hmm. And as of the last CDC data, which were uh, current as of February 3rd, there was no hint of a peak yet. Uh, the peak is usually late February or, or sometime in March. And uh, I think we're going to see that. This year, it's been a it's been a very bad flu year. Mm -hmm. Okay, so to the pushback of somebody who says, "Well, Henry Miller, there's an outbreak in October, but you know I'm healthy and I, I exercise and I live right and I take care of myself and my immune condition, you know, my immune system is in good shape. I haven't gotten it yet. If you're telling me I should get a shot now, it's going to take a couple weeks to get it. Why should I just roll the dice and assume I'm not going to get it by May? So what is the counterargument? Well, because rolling the dice could be a matter of life and death, mm -hmm. not only for you, but for those around you. Because the more people who uh, get the vaccine and are protected, even though it's an imperfect vaccine, mm -hmm. uh, it creates a, what's called herd immunity. It creates a kind of biological barrier that prevents the spread of the vaccine. So you're doing a service to your community and also your, those you live with uh, if you if you do get the vaccine. There's, there's one other thing I want to mention before we go on to policy. Uh, <clears throat> as I mentioned, the flu virus mutates very readily, very, uh, very aggressively. Uh, and that's why, unlike vaccines for, say, measles and mumps, uh, where you get, the, you get it as a kid and maybe one booster shot later on and you have immunity for life, with flu, you need to get it every year. The, the vaccine is reformulated every year. And that's because of uh, what virologists call uh, antigenic drift. In other words, the, um, the, the antigens, the, the molecules on it drift in their composition. Um, what we're really concerned about is uh, what's called um, antigenic shift. And that's a major change, so major in the uh, composition of the virus that uh, virtually no one has immunity, any immunity to it at all. And the vaccines 
uh, depending on when the shift occurs, the vaccines may also not recognize uh, that as a, uh, if, if it becomes the dominant flu virus. That's what caused the, the uh, massive pandemic of 1918-19 that killed tens of millions around the world and killed 675,000 approximately in the U.S. Uh, so it's antigenic shift that we're really concerned about. And uh, the way that that uh, can occur is the uh, virus can jump from a, uh, an animal reservoir mm -hmm. uh, like chickens or pigs uh, directly to humans. Or um, you sometimes get the, r the rare situation where an animal is infected simultaneously with uh, a, say, a swine virus and a human virus. And these and the the RNAs that can that uh, comprise the genome reassort, and you get a hybrid virus that's partly human, partly swine or or avian, uh, and that's uh, not recognized by anybody's immune system, and uh, that's the kind of thing that becomes a widespread and a major killer worldwide. Okay, Henry. In about a week from now, I'm getting on an airplane and flying across the country, and. I enjoy air travel, but airplanes are also cootie factories, plain and simple. You're sitting inside a metal tube for five or six hours, everybody breathing the same air and spreading whatever germs they may have. Short of wearing a hazmat suit, short of staying out of human contact for the next couple of months, what can people do to prevent the flu? Should we become a nation of people wearing masks out in public? Should people be wearing gloves? Should we not hug each other and shake hands and things like that? How can people in their everyday lives minimize their risk of flu? As you said, an airplane is a, a, an invitation to contract the flu, or for that matter, the common cold during the, the wintertime. Uh, a mask is, uh, is a good idea. Uh, but most of all, you need to be conscious that uh, touching common surfaces uh, is, is hazardous. Mm -hmm. And uh, the flight attendants are, are touching things that other people have touched, right. and so they become uh, reservoirs. So if of, you're going up an escalator, don't put your hand on the ramp on the escalator, which a 1,000 people have done before. Exactly. Right. And although it's a cliche, wash your hands very frequently. Uh, if when you emerge from a restroom on a plane or, or anywhere else, be cognizant that anything you touch as you leave the restroom may have been touched by someone who hadn't washed his or her hands. Yeah, when you say wash and hands, Dr. Miller, are you saying soap and water, Purell? What, what do you recommend? Soap and, wa soap and hot water, mm -hmm. uh, a vigorous wash, or alcohol wipes. Uh, are also uh, good in, in the absence of uh, availability of soap and hot water. Okay, you mentioned, Henry, the, uh, the pandemic of 1918, uh, which I happened to catch on television last week. I was watching a special on the U.S. involvement in World War I, and they sort of glossed over it. Um, and what they did mention, though, that caught my attention was this. In 1918, this terrible pandemic goes around the world, influenza, and ends up killing 50 to 100 million people. I think 20 million soldiers were killed in World War I, so this thing is by far a killer. But what's fascinating inside the United States, Henry, the president of the United States, Woodrow Wilson, does not talk about this disease. Why? There's a war on. He does not want to distract from the war effort. His Surgeon General, Henry, discourages people from going to the doctor. He tells the public, if you have a mild case of the flu, don't bother the doctor. Stay home. Stay on your job. Don't, don't worry about it. Here we are 100 years later, Henry, and here's what fascinates me. Donald Trump, president of the United States. He has used the word epidemic several times during his presidency when speaking of human trafficking. He calls it an epidemic. When speaking of crime in Chicago, he has called it an epidemic. When speaking about the opioid addiction, he has called it an epidemic. But Donald Trump has not talked about the flu. Donald Trump is not doing PSAs telling people to get a flu shot. Donald Trump, as far as I know, is not declaring a war on curing the flu. What's going on here? Well, uh, well before I get, I get into Donald Trump, let me pick up a little bit on the Spanish flu epidemic of 1918-19. Um, my father was a child at the time, and he Philadelphia, right? in Philadelphia, yeah. and he recollects uh, seeing uh, horse-drawn wagons piled with corpses rumbling through the streets. Uh, Fifteen thousand died in Philadelphia alone uh, at the 
and as I said, uh, with the toll, de- uh, the death toll nationwide was two thirds of the deaths occurred in the in about a ten week period in the autumn of nineteen eighteen. So that would have been the peak e- of exactly, of the pandemic. exactly. Right. Uh, but getting to uh, to your question, I think um, the the president has not shown that he's attuned to scientific and medical issues very much, mm-hmm. uh, and many of the senior positions in the government that um, uh, would be concerned with uh, such things have not been filled. So there's no um, presidential science advisor. Uh, There's only a skeleton crew in the White House Science Office, the Office of Science and Technology Policy. Um, Most presidents, in fact, have not been uh, themselves very knowledgeable about scientific or medical issues. Mm -hmm. So that's not surprising. One thing... um, that I think is is promising is that uh, although the president um, said some things that were uh, of questionable scientific merit about vaccines early on um, when he was first elected, and he met with Robert F. Kennedy. Yeah, let's get into this now because RFK Jr. is a notorious anti-vaxxer, and he met with President Trump or President-elect Trump? I forget which. He was an officer of the time. I think it was President-elect Trump. He meets with Trump, and presumably he is schooling Donald Trump on the ills and evils of vaccines. Exa- are, there, are there any anti-vaxxers floating around his administration that you know of? Not that I know of, and that's what I was referring to as mm-hmm. something that's good, or at least it's the absence of something bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we haven't seen that. But, um, you know, there, there is a, a, a U.S. Surgeon General, and uh, there are... Uh, very knowledgeable, uh, articulate, persuasive people at the National Institutes of Health mm-hmm. and the Centers for Disease Control, uh, although CDC is now without a head. Uh, right. So let's let's break down, Henry. If, if we want to talk about the government getting getting control on on the outbreak and ultimately finding a cure for the outbreak or helping science, we should say, find the cure for the outbreak, let's talk about who plays the role here. So you mentioned CDC, the Centers for Disease Control. There is also the National Institutes of Health. There's the Food and Drug Administration. What other players am I missing? Well, the, interestingly, the Department of Defense is is involved DOD. because, yeah, so? be, be, well, they uh, they have a lot of people living in close proximity to one another on ships and in military bases, and so they have to uh, be ready for a- outbreaks right. as well. And uh, there are there are various memoranda of understanding between DOD and, uh, say, the Food and Drug Administration, mm-hmm. my old stomping ground, um, which permits DOD to request the use of um, of unapproved drugs or vaccines when necessary. Right. Um, and um, but uh, but otherwise, you you've pretty much uh, covered the waterfront. There are uh, pretty robust plans uh, in place for epidemics and especially pandemics. And they have uh, many critical elements. Mm -hmm. So there's surveillance, uh, there's um, the availability or, if necessary, the development of diagnostic tests so that if we have one of those antigenic shifts that I discussed and the appearance of a brand new, uh, very dangerous virus, we need to have uh, diagnostic tests specific for those. We need to have crash programs for producing vaccines, Mm -hmm. which is done exclusively by the private sector, by drug companies. Um, And we need to have uh, various um, other potential strictures in place, like uh, curbing public transportation, uh, requiring that schools close. and uh, 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 denying uh, people uh, access at the borders, if necessary, uh, especially if they appear to to be ill. So uh, there are a lot of aspects of this that the different agencies collaborate on, and and have, but also have uh, unique responsibilities for. True or false? A cure, a prevention form for flu, is within about a decade's reach. Well, we hope so. Um, the um, the, the uh, holy grail of vaccine production is what's called a universal flu vaccine. And that would be one that uh, 
that unlike the current vaccines that need to be formulated every year mm -hmm. uh, with varying amounts of success and injected or uh, otherwise administered every year. You wrote the, about this recently for Fox News, right? I did. Mm -hmm. the, the, uh, the universal vaccine would um, incorporate elements of the flu virion that uh, do not mutate readily and do not change from year to year or decade to decade. The problem is that the parts of the, of the virion that, that don't mutate and that would be amenable to a vaccine also don't elicit a good immune response, mm -hmm. and therein lies the problem. So there are a couple of approaches to the, to the universal vaccine that are being undertaken. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to uh, prognosticate, as Yogi Berra said, it's hard to uh, pre make predictions, especially about the future. The future. So, uh, um, but we're, we're, we're very hopeful about that. The other thing I should mention is that there are drugs that are, uh, that will both partially prevent and also shorten the duration and severity of illness uh, in case you contract the flu. There's a capsule called Tamiflu mm -hmm. and an inhaled powder called Relenza. Uh, and if these are administered within the first 48 hours of flu symptoms, uh, they've been shown to shorten the duration and the severity. Uh, Tamiflu, at least, can also uh, prevent the flu in many cases if, um, uh, if a person is exposed and uh, begins taking the, uh, the drug right away. Let's uh, play a little hypothetical here, Henry. You go to the White House and you meet with the president and his people, and the president's come to him. He's made up, he's made up his mind. What he's decided is he's very impressed by what Joe Biden did, calling for a moonshot to cure cancer. Politicians love to use moonshot because it evokes John Kennedy wanting to put a man on the moon by the end of the 1960s. Joe Biden wants to cure cancer. Donald Trump comes to the conclusion this would make a lot of sense for Trump because Trump is a blue-collar, lunch-pail, bridge and tunnel kind of guy, and the flu is a bridge and tunnel, lunch pail kind of disease. Everybody, everybody gets it. It doesn't play class favorites. Everybody gets it. Trump decides, Henry, that he wants a moonshot to cure the flu. So he says, Dr. Miller, how do I go about doing this? I can get you billions of dollars in research money if you want. How would you, Dr. Henry Miller, unleash government? And is it strictly just a matter of the United States government working in tandem with American science, or would we be talking more of an international project? Well, that's a, an, an interesting uh, supposition, Bill. Um, there are several ways to approach that. One is there are uh, sort of brute force. Uh, it, first of all, it's a good idea. Mm -hmm. And and there are people in the government already who are eminently qualified to lead such an operation. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking of Tony Fauci, the head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease at NIH. Mm -hmm. He's been at this for a long time. He's an administrator and a good scientist. Um, uh, so uh, uh, giving uh, NIH, giving uh, Fauci's institute uh, a, a big infusion of money would mean a lot, would be a good idea. Um, and there are several approaches. One uh, that I've also written about is kind of a, a brute force approach. Uh, extensive clinical trials that would identify um, better dosing regimes, um, especially for seniors who, as I said, are at high risk, uh, higher risk than uh, other age groups for uh, death or severe complications from flu. Um, and, um, and also uh, the testing of uh, various additives to existing flu vaccines, additives called adjuvants, which boost the immune response. So uh, you can certainly picture um, clinical trials that uh, uh, looked at the efficacy of different vaccines, some with adjuvant, some without, and uh, in different age groups uh, and with recipients receiving different doses of, of the vaccine. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the uh, seniors vaccine just has more of the antigen, more of the guts of the flu vaccine than uh, the vaccine for other age groups. Um, but mainly, uh, the effort in your flu moonshot 
should be on the universal vaccine. Mm -hmm. And uh, that could be in conjunction with the private sector entities, drug companies primarily, who are working on this already. <clears throat> um, the, uh, the studies are expensive to do. Um, the, uh, they're done extensively in animals first for obvious reasons, mainly ferrets and, uh, and rabbits, um, because uh, you can't uh, give a, a test vaccine to humans and then challenge them with virus. Uh, and so they're expensive, they're time-consuming. I think a decade is uh, a, a reasonable expectation for a universal vaccine. All right. We look around the world, Henry, other nations, the Japanese, for example, who have been involved in flu virus. I believe it was a spinoff. They were doing AIDS research and they somehow stumbled into, into, into flu. Uh, other nations approach this, Henry. Do their governments drive the research? Do, they have, do their universities drive the research? How does it work with, with some of these other nations? Well, it, uh, the, uh, these other nations have uh, uh, high-quality uh, pharmaceutical industries. Yeah, let me put it this way. If we were to partner, if, we, if Trump were to declare this is a world issue because a pandemic is quite possible, we're not at a pandemic stage, by the way, are we? No, no, we're no. not. It's an epidemic, right? It's now, an epidemic. But when does it become a pandemic? Uh, it becomes a pandemic when uh, there's um, severe illness worldwide really severe illness worldwide. A function of number of countries or population? or it, It's sort of a judgment call. It's made by the World Health Organization. Right. Um, and at times they've pulled the trigger too quickly, I think. But uh, anyway, it's worldwide, very severe illness. When did, did they get it wrong? Uh, they just, uh, it, it really wasn't significantly different from the seasonal flu epidemics that we see uh, year after year. That's, that was my okay. objection. Now, if, if the Trump administration were to reach out to other nations, Henry, to look for allies in, in the search for the cure, what nations do they turn to? Uh, well, it would be uh, uh, the European countries, which uh, have multinational drug companies and vaccine producers mm -hmm. uh, of their own, uh, Japan and uh, Australia, and maybe some of the Scandinavian countries. Uh, Finland has some major drug companies, but it would be it would be mainly Western Europe, uh, Japan, and Australia, and Canada. And would the U.S. be driving the train? Presumably, uh, the the most of the money would uh, probably come from the U.S. if it were a, a high visibility moonshot sort of operation, as you described. Mm -hmm. So, finding a universal universal drug, how long would that take? Do you think? Uh, universal vaccine? Universal vaccine. If you devoted the suitable treasure and the brain power, the bandwidth to it, what do you think a realistic timeline would be? Well, I'd, I'd say within a decade, but it's it's very hard to know. This sure. is a... It's hit or miss, yeah. It's an elusive problem scientifically. Right. And, and also, once you, once you develop it, you don't know how long-lasting it'll be. You hope that it'll be... Uh, it'll confer broad immunity and for... Uh, and, and a, a great length of time, maybe permanently, mm -hmm. but but you don't know it. There's um, there's a classic uh, cartoon of uh, two scientists at the lab bench, and one of them is holding an Erlenmeyer flask, and he, and he says to the other, I think we've finally done it. We've found a drug that will confer uh, immortality. The trouble is it'll take forever to test it. <laughs> And and there's there, there there's something to that. Uh, exactly. It's it's a problem you have with uh, with a vaccine. You don't know uh, that long term immunity is has been conferred until you get out to uh, a long term. Okay. Henry CRISPR, C R I S P R, CRISPR. What does that stand for, and what's its significance in the in the battle against the flu? CRISPR is a um, is a technique for very precise technique for uh, doing gene editing. Mm -hmm. uh, and so... Um, Stands clustered, regularly interspaced, short palindromic repeats. That, do you want right. to translate that in English? Uh, well, uh, the, the, the CRISPR has, has two components. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them is a, uh, a DNA sequence that, uh, that seeks out a, a portion of the DNA 
in in whatever organism or whatever piece of DNA is it is you you want to modify, mm-hmm. and the other part uh, then uh, cuts into the DNA and uh, changes. Uh, anything from a single base. Remember, uh, DNA is comprised of four so-called bases, four different kinds of molecules, A, A, T, G, and C. And CRISPR, uh, Cas9, Cas9 is the enzymatic part, uh, can modify uh, a single base very precisely, very reproducibly, or it can excise a a part of DNA and insert uh, something that you wish to substitute. So it's a very so it's a very smart, very advanced design system. Is what very it is. smart, very Who, very where precise. Where is CRISPR research done? Who does it? Is it commonly done in universities, or is it a very specialized? Commonly, system? commonly done in universities. It, the the two major powers on CRISPR are uh, the University of California, Berkeley, and MIT, and um, the um, the progress has been absolutely stunning. Uh, so uh, a couple years ago, there was a significant incidence of what are called off-target changes, mm-hmm. that is, alterations other than those you're trying to make, mm-hmm. and that's down now to virtually zero. So uh, this is extremely promising for all manner of things, for, uh, for constructing a, uh, a, a synthetic virus, for example, for a vaccine, mm-hmm. uh, for modifying uh, human cells to be used as human gene therapy, and and even modifying uh, human embryos uh, in order to correct genetic defects. It is absolutely stunning work. It is stunning. So perhaps that is your path to universal vaccination. It it is. uh, It'll be helpful. It'll be one of the techniques that's helpful, although the previously available techniques could have been adequate for that as well. I'm not sure if it's possible to, to do this, Henry, but... Can you rank or prioritize in terms of scientific research where universal vaccines would be vis-a-vis cancer, vis-a-vis AIDS, other other diseases we're trying to find a cure for? I, I don't think it, one can ra- really rank them. They're, they're both so important and, and such uh, inflictors of morbidity and mortality and misery on uh, the American and other populaces. That I think they all deserve, uh, they all deserve uh, aggressive research and development. Interesting. Um, I'm going to say some words I rarely say in this podcast, uh, Henry, and that's that California appears to have its act together <laughs> in this regard. In December 2014, Henry, there was a measles outbreak at Disneyland, but 159 visitors contracted the disease, which is, of course, not inconsequential because you don't normally get that many measles cases these days. The state of California that did something which in retrospect was pretty smart, Henry, it passed a law. SB 277 was the name of the bill, Senate Bill 277. It went into effect in 2016, Henry. It eliminated all personal belief exemptions in the state of California. It tightened the approach to conditionally enrolled students. It had a plan, in effect, to get more kids vaccinated. And as a result, more kids in California have been vaccinated, and you see diseases on the decline. Is this the way of the future in America? Well, this is something uh, I don't often say. Uh, You're right about California having made progress on on public policy in this area. Uh, It used to be that um, parents could, uh, could opt out of having their kids vaccinated mm-hmm. uh, just because they uh, harbored some of these these ideas that you cited earlier about uh, getting sick from the uh, from the vaccine or uh, getting too many uh, shots uh, or uh, becoming autistic as a result of uh, pediatric uh, vaccination um, and uh, there were a lot of kids who were. Uh, contracting measles and mumps and chickenpox, diseases that uh, we we just don't see very much anymore uh, because of their parents' irresponsibility. Uh, So that measure was a a real breakthrough. It's now possible to opt out of vaccines only uh, if a a child has um, some genuine medical contraindication to it, such as an immune defect or... um, bone marrow transplant uh, or um, chemotherapy and, and 
and, and therefore has an abnormal immunity, immune response. What, what is the state of the anti-vaccine movement in this country outside of the random celebrity, a Jenny McCarthy or somebody like that who wants to link vaccines to autism, but ultimately she's a celebrity? Is there anybody out there, a serious-minded person, if you will, is there anybody seriously-minded out there who is leading the anti-vaccine charge? Do you see any sign of it making progress in this country? No, no, there isn't. And I think I think it's waning. But um, my own feeling is that any uh, anti-vaccine activism or rhetoric is too much. Uh, it's it's really a, a, a dreadful and, and, and menacing uh, idea. Okay. So short of going to your doctor and your doctor recommending that you get a flu shot, does government have a role here, Henry? Should the President of the United States be on a PSA going around the clock telling people, get your flu shot? Should we mandate that people get a flu shot? Well, you're, you're, um, you're pricking my libertarian instincts. Uh, I, think, uh, I think that we should encourage it, certainly. Mm -hmm. uh, it's difficult to say that uh, adults should, uh, should be forced to, uh, to, to have a flu it's shot. It's an interesting question when you think about it. You can say, okay, that getting a flu shot, it maybe doesn't prevent you from getting the flu, but it increases your chances of not getting the flu. Well, for God's sakes, every adult should get a flu shot. And if it's in the public's best interest, if it's a public health need, everybody gets it. End of discussion. But you're right. There's a very serious libertarian side to this, which is should the government really be forcing you to get your shots? Right. I, I think uh, in the event of a pandemic, mm -hmm. um, Assuming that we're uh, we're able to develop a vaccine rapidly enough, and uh, I hasten to say that would not be in chicken eggs. That would be using um, more modern techniques, growing it in cultured cells, yes. cells that have been removed from humans or or an animal, grown in tissue culture and then grown in large fermenters. Uh, assuming we were able to get the vaccine against a pandemic strain soon enough, uh, I think the government could invoke emergency powers and require everyone uh, to, to get the vaccine. It's all, uh, flu vaccine, of course, is already required in certain uh, professions, uh, nursing, hospital employees, mm -hmm. um, uh, people who work in uh, certain government offices and are exposed to the public right. uh, extensively. So, uh, it's not an, an, an unknown concept. What about getting a flu shot, Henry, as a condition of getting health care, or if you do not get the flu shot, your health care costs go up? That's, this that's, takes us down a huge slippery slide of, okay, if, if I gain 50 pounds, maybe my health insurance should go up because now I'm a greater health risk for diabetes and heart attack and things like that. But again, these are questions about what the government can and cannot be doing to you in terms of how you lead your personal life. Right. No, I, I think, uh, you know, there are various ways to nudge, uh, to nudge people to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And that would be one of them. And I sometimes think... Um, as I'm driving on the freeway and I see somebody texting at 75 miles an hour, I think you know, maybe insurance companies should say, uh, if you're involved in an accident while you're found to have been texting, we're not going to cover well, you. But you're Henry, there's a law against texting while you're driving. Tr that's true. Right. That's true. So, okay. So in theory, you just said, so we should force people to get vaccines because for the same reason, if you're texting in your car, you're a threat to the public. You're a menace. There's a good argument to be sure. made for that bill, and and uh, but as as we've said, there's a um, there's a, a balance between um, between personal freedom and and uh, government doing what's best for the populace as a whole. Right. So let's close out, Henry. So what more? Let's just list quickly what more the government should be doing. Should government A be spending more money on research? B does it need to in any way reorganize the structure of government to make the research quicker and more effective? And then C, in terms of just public relations and public awareness, what can the president do with his formidable bully pulpit? Well, I uh, I, I really didn't answer your question about what the president should be doing. I'd love to see him making public service announcements. I'd love to see him mentioning uh, the importance of uh, everyone. Well, actually, no, that's a good question, Henry, because is Donald Trump the right guy to be doing the PSA announcement? In this day and age, 
who do you put out there? Do you have Oprah do it? Who, who do you trust to say get a flu shot? Because I mean, people are so hard-boiled on Trump one way or the other. They either love Donald Trump or they don't. So it has to be somebody a little less polarizing, I think. Well, it can't hurt. I don't think it's going to discourage anybody from from getting a flu shot. But uh, I'm thinking like those TV commercials that have the uh, that show the fake TV doctors trying to talk about insurance. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> good. All that, that yeah, like that would be terrific. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you so there needs to be some sort of public awareness, some sort of PSA program to to raise awareness to it. Yeah, greater public awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, the. Um, Many of the uh, news networks have been doing a fairly good job. They've been uh, promoting um, hand washing and vaccines. One criticism I have uh, of them, though, is that very few have mentioned the anti-flu drugs, uh, which can be life-saving. And I'm not sure why. It may be too obscure uh, or they lack expertise, uh, required expertise, but... um, uh, but we, we certainly need the, uh, the kind of um, what you call the moonshot approach as well. Uh, more money, uh, better directed, uh, and also just parenthetically, one, one of the things I've, I've written about is the need for us to be more discerning in our research priorities. So the National Science Foundation has a um, social, behavioral, and economic sciences directorate, which gives away... Uh, money for for what I, what I consider really dubious projects, uh, for example, nearly seven hundred thousand dollars for a musical on climate change. Uh, now, NSF, the National Science Foundation, is the kind of organization that does things like devises diagnostic tests for for viruses or separation techniques for right. for DNAs. Why they should be spending uh, on that systematically through this one directorate is beyond me. It's 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 offensive, and even the NIH has a, a national National Institute of Complementary uh, and, uh, and Complementary and Integrative Medicine, mm-hmm. and uh, those monies I think are poorly spent by and large. So we don't even need all new money. We could redirect, redirect some of it. And, and uh, former Senator Tom Gob- Coburn has uh, ma- made a, uh, an issue of this uh, misappropriation of federal research funds when he was a senator. And I've written about that several times. So that would be driven by the Trump White House, the HHS secretary, and Congress. They would be the ones reorganizing the money. It would be it would be Congress that would have to appropriate change the appropriation, um, but the administration could reorganize NIH and NSF. And finally, Henry, we've been talking about this in terms of moonshots. We've been putting it in sort of a NASA scientific light, if you will. But if there is a parallel between flu research and a past disease research, what would that parallel be? Would it be maybe polio? Would that be the, the proper parallel? How long was polio research done before before the vaccine came out? Well, let's see. Uh, the vaccine comes out when in the 50s, right? In the, in the early, early 50s. 50s. Um, you know, one of the interesting things about uh, scientific research, and polio is a good example, is the synergy of, of different approaches. Mm-hmm. Um, res- basic research looks at fundamental processes, and, uh, and then you get synergy of uh, confluence of, of different things. And so uh, with polio, the, um, uh, seminal, uh, the seminal findings were ways to grow cells in tissue culture. And uh, interestingly, uh, the, the cell line that uh, the Salk vaccine, the first vaccine, was grown in was African green monkey kidney, uh, an established cell line. And uh, the, the, um, much of the work on getting cells to grow in tissue culture were done by a, an Italian uh, scientist, Renato Del Becco, who... Uh, moved to the U.S. and in whose lab I worked at, uh, when I was in graduate school at the Salk Institute, and he later won a Nobel Prize oh. for that work. And it's it's interesting that it was uh, the the people who made possible the various elements of assembling a vaccine 
uh, the people who uh, did the fundamental work on immunology, the people who did the work on, on tissue culture, uh, the people who did the work on the virus, poliovirus itself, uh, who were responsible for the success and who won the Nobel Prizes, whereas Dr. Salk didn't. And, um, and what he did was uh, a, a heroic effort to do the clinical trials, uh, to organize them, to get them funded by the March of Dimes. Uh, but uh, but it, it's, it illustrates very well the importance of uh, good basic research and uh, and the uh, the synergy of different scientific approaches. You never know where it's going to end up, and that's the importance mm-hmm. of of good basic research. Okay, Henry Miller, keep writing about this. Get Washington's attention. Let's get him to get going on this and get the cure. I'm pedaling as fast as I can, Bill. Thank Henry, you. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. I did too. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the Policy Avenues, available to the 45th President of the United States, who hopefully has gotten his flu shot. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for the Hoover's Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Henry Miller and his colleagues to your inbox every weekday. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Dr. Henry Miller is also on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at Henry I. Miller. That's at Henry I-M-I-L-L-E-R, at Henry I. Miller. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.